This is the EPLOG audio experience. It's not very often when you meet an athlete who for 30 years has been active in the field of ultra cycling and triathlon space. Uh, not just someone who has been coaching other great athletes, but he himself has uh, got his hands dirty and got the bug of cycling and triathlon. And uh, on this episode of Hit The Road, I, Rohan Thakar, it's my absolute privilege to have Tracy McKay on the podcast. Hi, Tracy. Good morning, Ron. This is fantastic. This is quite an honor to be uh, calling in 9,000 yeah. miles away. So I, this is this is huge. I appreciate it. So two years back when I started the podcast, I, I didn't have even the slightest clue that I'll be meeting such amazing people who have dedicated their life towards sports and their life has been defined by this uh, very much sport. India, as we know, is a growing platform for budding athletes for the world of ultra cycling and triathlon. And uh, today on Hit the Road, we have with us Tracy McKay, or as people like to call him, T-Mac. You might have known the amount of records that our very own Lieutenant Colonel Bharat Panu has broken in the last decade and especially in year of 2020. On this episode, I am thrilled to have his coach, uh, that is T-Mac, talking about his experiences and how he has molded athletes to become these race breeds, I can say. <laughs> and what has he done to optimize the output and maximize performance? So, have I said it right or is there something yeah, you would no, like you to add? Yeah, you nailed it. I think, I think the podcast is over now. I think you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I am. That's what I do. <laughs> All right. Uh, so T-Mac has completed over 185 endurance events. Uh, he holds uh, three state cycling records, two Ironman finishes and two Ram finishes. TNGA finish in 2020 and most recently a 10th place finish at the 2021 Full Gas World TD Cycling Championship of riding uh, around 350 miles in just 20.5 hours which ended due to a knee injury. Right. It's an amazing right. feat that uh, Tracy has achieved and he's here today sharing with us everything that he's learned so far. So Tracy, I'm curious to know, how did your athletic journey begin? And how is it in the US? How is the cycling community and culture in the US? Yeah. All right. So uh, two questions. Um, the first is, how did I get started? I, I don't know how far back you want to go. I'm 54, so I can go back wow. I mean, <laughs> a long ways. <laughs> you know, just like anybody, my first bike as a kid, you know, and just riding around the neighborhoods and you know, looking back on it, you yeah. get a lot of freedom mm. from, you know, the household or freedom from school. Yeah. And uh, I think parents like to think of kids as always having freedom. Yes. And while it's true, you know, kids take on so much uh, that the parents don't even realize. My background is counseling psych, so that's why I'm speaking on this. And then and if, when kids go outside and play, wonderful things happen that are very um, long lasting. Um, one, they're constantly in a creative mode, yes. problem solving their surroundings. And two, they do experience a freedom that's different from this larger perspective of well, kids don't have to do anything. 
Mm. Kids have a lot to do. They're constantly problem solving. They're constantly dealing with uh, subject matter that they don't know how to speak on because they don't have the language yet, you know, Mm. and they don't have the perspective built up. And I think that for me, um, that really was the case. I mean, looking back on it now, I know that's for a fact. And I had a friend of mine who also rode bicycles and we grew up and we're just just riding around the neighborhood. And then one day he says, hey, um, I'm going to do this this bicycle marathon. Do you want to participate? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What do we do? And so we started buying all these things and putting them on our bikes and, you know, lights and, you know, everything. I'm, I'm 12 at the time. And uh, we go out and we rode 40. We get into this marathon. We raise money for a charity just like today. And we ride a loop. Right. This was a one mile loop because it was just really small community. Yes. And um, I wound up uh, everybody stopped and I kept riding and I wound up riding 42, 41 miles, 42 miles Mm -hmm. uh, that day. And uh, and I was 12 years old and there was no one else on the course. Everyone else had stopped. And for me, um, I was a very athletic kid. I was I was small. I was scrawny and for me to finish the, the only finisher of you know that distance was, you know, I'll never forget it. It's clear as it's, it's clear in my head. And so it, when, when events like that happen at that age, they, they kind of turn on this way of being, you know, you start yes. finding out who you are at that age mm-hmm. and that's how I got started. And I, the funny thing is, is I, I, I never did, uh, race again until I was probably 19. Oh, so, you know, it's a long gap. Yeah. Seven years pass. And then part of those events that happened to you when you were a little kid, Mm. now they're, they're coming back, right? Yes. You know, you've dealt with high school and college or whatever, and and now it's coming back and you know, you don't know it, but it's those events and those formative years that have really Mm. shaped who you are and the direction you're going. And that's how I got started. And I, I happened to be good at it. You know, I was, um, again, I didn't play ball. I was too small. I was too scared to play baseball. Uh, traditional American sports did not appeal to me. I didn't like, I didn't like the attitude. I didn't like the crowd. So I got into triathlons back in 1988. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm using 19th <laughs> 20th century. <laughs> We're going back to the 20th century. So, um, in 1988, I started, and um, so I believe I uh, triathlon was born around uh, just a few, one or two decades back, right? <laughs> right. It was definitely a new sport. I mean, when I started, um, if you had a heart rate monitor, if you if you had one, then mm-hmm. everyone looked at you like, "Oh man, you must be <laughs> pro." <laughs> and the, the heart rate monitors at the time. Uh, were put out by Polar, yeah. And all they did was they give you your high, your low, and your average. That was it. Yes, yeah. Which is actually a, it's actually enough to get the job done. And to mm. you can train at a pretty mm. in, in depth level just with those with, right. with just that information. So the second part of your question is, what is the cycling culture like in the United States? <sighs> like any group, the groups break down into smaller 
subgroups. Uh, I say the cyclist. I mean, they're friendly, but as compared to the cyclist, as compared to triathletes, triathletes have a tendency to kind of go overboard and everything is okay, everything mm. is good, and everything's very supportive. Right. Whereas the cyclists are a little bit more of, hey, you know, carry your own weight. Let's do this. I'm with you. I support you. Good job. But I'm going to kick your butt anyway. You know, it's a little <laughs> bit more aggressive. Right. And the mountain biker community are just super laid back, super fit, super capable, and just they could go trash each other on a mm. race and just right. so what? Let's go have yeah. a burger, get a beer. Mm. You know, it's just a different right. attitude. Mm. Um, I wish that the juniors, the junior cycling is growing, is, is growing. Uh, we have uh, what's called the National Interscholastic Cycling uh, mm. Association. And that is promoting uh, mountain bike racing at a high school, in a junior high school level. And where I live, traditional sports have always played um, a bigger role. Mm. And now the youth leagues for mountain biking has just blown apart. It's amazing. It is amazing. You'll go to any park on the weekend and you'll have 300 riders with mm-hmm. their dads or moms or maybe an entire family out there riding. And then when you go to wow. a race, you'll have 500 kids there and they're all have a role. They have responsibility to setting up their team tent, taking care of their equipment, um, and then racing and then supporting one another. And it's just, it's amazing what it's done for the cycling community. So this um, culture of, uh, like you mentioned that 500 kids coming on the road to race, it's, it's really awesome. You have been on both the sides. Uh, you, you have been participating in races and you are also a coach. What are some of the things that you learned in your span of being on the field? We are incredibly small. Cycling is very egocentric. Mm. And it's very, you know, it's all focused on the rider. And I think we've become, I, th- I think we've gotten good at taking our, um, our selfish needs of riding that bike mm. and flipping it so that it, it has a more, has a far reaching impact. You know, everything we do is for ourselves when it gets down to it. Okay. So how do we leverage that? How do we use that to impact others and really to, you know, to, how can we create it? in a way so that it's more selfless, right? So what happens is um, we learn how to um, represent a charity or we, we give it a deeper purpose. We give it a bigger purpose uh, more than just me riding 3,000 miles. I know in, um, in 2004, um, I was, uh, you know, locally, you know, everybody knew me, everybody was following me and, um, social media still wasn't a big deal. I mean, it wasn't a big thing. Yet, mm, okay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, that's weird. And it? social media, <laughs> like there was no Instagram. Right. It, it came just, uh, <laughs> right. 
eight years back eight or yeah, around so 10 years around back. 10 years yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 2004 you know, facebook was there about, mm-hmm. yeah 18 so you know there's no everyone who's following you is by word of mouth and you your ego gets built up mm-hmm. and you get the sponsorships and then you go out there and then you climb up to pine valley and you're about to drop into the imperial sand dunes and it's like whoa I am, I am so tiny. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm such a small participant in this big world. And you quickly, I mean, for me anyway, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this person who I thought I was, was completely diminished by the fact that there's so much more going on in the world. And I had to reevaluate the importance of what I was doing. And you know, is this worth time? Is this worth doing? And Mm -hmm. if it's not worth doing today, how do I make it worth doing tomorrow? Mm. Right? Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's a little heavy, but yes, it does. (laughs) Sorry. Other than that, get your nutrition right. (laughs) No, I get it. Aside from the... Hmm. Yeah, aside from the heavy stuff, I would say, you know, um, you know Rohan, you know, pull the reins, keep me from going down a rabbit hole. The, the other big thing that I realize is that a lot of the participants in ultra cycling are hmm. very good at consistency and repetitiveness and somewhat obsessive and yeah. somewhat a little compulsive and on a good way. I mean, this hmm. is, these are good characteristics to have if you're going to race long distance. Yes. And, um, I think the crew, the, the individuals who are selected for the crew, hmm. have, share some of the same uh, characteristics. A problem with that is when they make their plan, when they're you know outlining their strategy, they can become very very rigid with hmm. the plan. Right. And so the biggest advice that I give all of the crews or any team that I work with is. Your very first rule for your team is to be flexible with the concrete plan. Mm. If you're not flexible, you snap in half. Something goes bad and you, you're not, you haven't given yourself permission to be flexible, right? And to be right. creative, like when you're nine years old riding that bicycle, you could go mm. anywhere and do anything. Mm. Over time, we can get really good with the concrete and we lose that, mm. that freedom to, you know, be really creative and think outside the box. Hmm. And I think that, um, well, I know for a fact, you know, over hmm. you know, 30 years of racing and working with teams inside and outside of cycling, the same rules apply, whether it's manufacturing or family or racing your bicycle. When you get a group of people together, you know, you have to have a common denominator. You have to have a common direction. Right, right. And... With that, you have to start creating, formulating your plan, your roles, mm. um, uh, and you have to play with what that's going to look like yeah. in the face of uh, potential failure. Um, mm. How's the team going to function? I mean, it's never you know to say the team's never been pulled together before, right. and and all of a sudden they're faced with an obstacle. Sure, they know they're going to follow behind a rider and get them 3000 miles and they may have to change a tire, 
but what happens and how does the team handle it when the when the writer looks at the crew and says no more i'm not gonna I'm, i can't write anymore <laughs> i can't write anymore like who's gonna hold yeah. that person accountable yeah right mm, right um i'll tell I you you want to hear a crazy story yeah please go ahead so the year i raced solo mm -hmm. right um i was racing i realized that okay look i've got to have to do this to afford this i need mm -hmm. to make it important not just for me but for other people and so how right. would i do that and so i'm trying to make it more important by associating myself with a charity and i would be their publicity mm. stunt mm. right and i would race across the united states and they would gather their money and that's their that's what they did i had my crew ready to go mm. and i had one person on the crew who was a bit reluctant and this was a very it was a very rigid um, participant uh, great participant but very rigid mm -hmm. with the potential outcome and when faced with the possibility of failure people will have a tendency not to want to participate in those things right mm. and so long story short this one person who would have been my crew chief um, kind of sabotaged the process. I'd already had right. flights paid and long story short, I lost my entire crew mm -hmm. to fear that they right. would not be able to do their job. Mm -hmm. so, so what was the solution I, in that case? It was amazing. My being a part of a bigger group, the charity stepped up and they said, let's find you some people who would be willing to go to San Diego and give up two weeks of their life. Mm. So in a perfect world, you would want somebody who is technically oriented. You would want somebody who understands maps and so forth and is really good with direction. Um, mm. And you would want someone who is really good at just, you know, playing the role of a driver. And you would also want somebody who could take charge and who could have, who could be a really good leader in all this. And in one week, I went from having zero crew to a geologist, wow. a bike mechanic, a computer technician. Okay. EMT. I mean, I had the crew. <laughs> it was amazing. And I had a, um, a youth leader uh, in the mm -hmm. local church. They have large youth groups mm -hmm. and he was just the coolest guy, you know, in his sunglasses and sort of okay. a surfer dude. And, um, and he was just very laid back and very mm -hmm. easy to get along with. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was, it was crazy that that came together that way. Mm, and mm. it was just by divine intervention or luck or whatever you want to call it, it came to, that was, that was, the, that was the solution was we got lucky, you know, yeah. you're not necessarily always that lucky. And you know, you've got a lot of money put into this, a lot of time. Yeah. And sometimes you get desperate and you start reaching for any warm body, you know, with mm. two feet. And who's willing to, and while you need that, that seems like a solution, it may not be a good fit, but in our desperation to get our crews together and to get ourselves to the starting line, hmm. you know, that, 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 that drive to get there. Sometimes we get rigid with ourselves and say, we're going to make this happen no matter what. Hmm. And we lose sight 
of our method of getting there and mm. that might cost us in the long run. You might pull somebody on board because you need that eighth person. Right. But that eighth person is a horrible fit. Mm. You know, um, I remember when I was coaching, um, or not coach, but uh, when I was, I was brought on board with Chris McDonald from Denmark. Mm. Super nice guy, one of the most gracious athlete. He's amazing and extremely capable. And he yeah. had a crew, Rohan, he had 18 people on his crew. Wow. Yeah. 18. And he had a news crew. Okay. Yeah, well, I said it was seven, seven in each van, and then he had a okay. news crew from Denmark, which played okay. out. And they were following us, but they had mm. to adhere to all the RAM rules because they were brought on as our, as part of our crew. Right. So they couldn't be this third party out there. Mm. They were part of our crew, so 18 people. Mm. And so it's that crew wants something. Both follow vehicles, the crew yeah. members in each of those, they want something, mm. not necessarily the same thing. And then my rider wants something. Yeah. Right. And so luckily managing had, 18 people, I can totally imagine like, and bringing well, them to the same thought alignment. It's a, is a task. Yeah. Luckily culture that lent itself to a successful group. They, the Danes were very good at just setting their personal stuff aside mm. and getting the job done uh, right. regardless. And, mm. um, you know, when you have 18 people on board, you're going to have a setback. You're going to have some sort of personality clash. Mm. And they were very good at recognizing early on, let's just move some people around. Well, right. we need to move some people around to make them fit. Mm. Mm. So we had uh, a crew chief and myself. And so between the two of us, we rotated and okay. my primary job was race strategist. Mm. I am not that, I am not the detailed person, uh, who is, everything's going to be, every T is going to be crossed and every yeah. I is going to be dotted. That's not me. Mm. I'm the guy who says it's time to be flexible. It's time right. to be creative. It's time to think mm. outside the box. Um, but it, it has to make sense with it has to support the overall goal of the mm. rider you know, mm. and the best of the crew so um that was that was a fantastic experience you know when we start bringing taking on stress as a crew mm. we get on down the, you know, the first couple of three days is no big deal yeah and then about four days into it you know we're talking about race across america yeah. uh we get four days into it <gasps> and then we start seeing each other for you know who we really are, you know, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, we, we start to smell and <laughs> mm. you know, we, we start to use a different language. We yeah. start taking different, um, liberties yeah. with each other's space mm. and just all those dynamics come in and that gets a little stressful, uh, aside from the job that you have to do. Hmm. And then you, and then you get better at it and then you get really good at dealing with each other in this stressful situation. Yes. Um, and either you get good at it or you don't get good at it. I remember racing one year and we actually had one person on the crew. We, um, I was riding, we, I was going through Colorado. I was riding through Colorado 
and I had heard some sort of gossip or some sort of language about a crew member in what mm. participating right or something was wrong. Mm. And I didn't know if that person was sick. I didn't know if that person was, you know, what was having a problem, personal problem at home. I didn't, I didn't know. I was on the, on the bike mm. and it was, I was racing a two person team uh, with Terry Zimmerall and we were rotating about okay. every three hours, which turned into a five hour pull and I was getting testy about it. And, you know, I was, didn't understand how no one told me anything. You know, and mm. as a rider, this is what's going through your head, you know, and as a yes. person, this is what's going through the, the head of your rider. It's like, why did you leave me out here all alone? Which is completely irrational. You know, you're right. not alone. <laughs> you're being taken care of. You're just not yes. getting what you want. Mm. And so it turns out that, but I, I was riding, uh, I kind of felt like I was left out there. Yes. And it, what had happened was one of our crew members um, needed to be off the team. And so um, the crew made a decision and the crew chief had made a harder decision to, you know, take that rider or take that to take the mm. crew person crew. and have a discussion with them and say, this is not going to work. We're only halfway and we're already having difficulties. So you're on the next plane home. And so they went to the airport and sent him home. Okay. And that's, that's a fair call. Hmm. That, is, that is a tough call. And, uh, but if a crew member is, if the way they are is interfering with the progress of the team, the production of the miles, you know, how the team needs to behave, then it's, that, that's part of the game. You right. You're off, you know, Right. And, um, so that sometimes, mm. sometimes things happen and we won on, we, we had a really pleasant race after yeah. that. Um, mm. you know, and it, the yeah. riders, we never knew it, but the crew was experiencing all of this and they never told us because they didn't want us to stress as a rider. They didn't want us to stress or worry about what was going on with the crew. And that was, that was exactly what they should have done. They just, Keep that down. They handle it in their vans. They handle it as a crew and let the rider focus on riding. Right. Because great. the rider is al already under stress of uh, being on the road for so many days. Absolutely. Uh, he can't take any, <laughs> any extra ounce of tension that will make him lose his focus. So, yeah. yeah. Bharat said me something very wonderful uh, in my, in his conversation previous time. So he told that the role of the crew is to ensure that everyone are in the same thought process and their only goal is to make the racer win. One of the things that I, when I, when I helped Bharat with putting his team together, hmm. you know, we had discussions every single week. Hmm. And one of the things that I asked the crew to do, uh, you know, prior to racing is handle all of their personal business the week hmm. prior, hmm. whether it's family issues, financial issues, or work issues, either delegate the responsibility out, handle it, have the hard discussions, get that off of your mind so that you can just be as devoted to the rider and your crew yeah. Yeah. as the rider is pedaling that bicycle. Mm -hmm. you know? I think a lot of people get on the crew and they think, well, it's going to be, it's an easy thing. Yeah, you know? it's a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's a road trip. How hard could it be? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
Now coming to the main point of this conversation, we are talking about ultra cycling and how can efficiency and performance be uh, be factored in, and how can the racer and the crew together be in sync to give the best output possible. So you mentioned something about psychodynamics, and you mentioned about uh, organizational psychology and group dynamics that can uh, help the team to. work better and reduce anything that can pull them back so what did, what is that thing right so the bottom line comes down to having a a common problem solving method mm-hmm. period whether you're the rider or the crew how are we going to solve this problem and the problems fall into uh, a couple of different categories one trauma mm-hmm. like the car breaking down the van breaking yeah. down the bicycle breaking um the rider uh decides that they don't want to ride anymore these mm. are kind of trauma and then you also have problems that come up that are chronic like uh, not understanding the geology or not understanding the mapping or having problems with batteries um uh, you and I are having a chronic issue with internet connection yeah okay <laughs> it's not a big deal but it's it's in the way The other types of problems are a lot more localized to the or specific to the individual. Right. You know, everybody's doing their job, but I've got I'm trying to handle business when I should be you know, taking care of the rider or mixing the water bottles. Mhm. So, um and that's always going to be and that's inherent in any group in any crew. Hmm. So, when we look at um a problem-solving method, we have a uh problem solving plan or method that i use and it's been used in manufacturing for decades um especially in like in toyota they use what's called root cause analysis right okay and it's really super simple really and that mm-hmm. is um for problem solving most of us think that we are good problem solvers right and what we are is creative Mm. by nature but we m- may not be very good at being creative right okay mm. so what do we use and you know if you, we have cultural um differences that may be on the team um you have age differences and uh all of the, all all the all the variations that you could possibly put together on this one team how do you get them to think about problem solving. We have you literally have to have a method and this is what seems to work is you want to be able to recognize and define what are the concerns or complaints or obstacles that the team is facing. So and, and I like to take this type it out and put it on mm. the dashboard. And okay. because it's always running in their mind in their peripheral vision and their subconscious mm. just sort of, you know, gets in there. And every right. team member has a copy of it and So one, you know, define the concern, the complaint or the obstacle. How are we seeing this because I may be seeing the problem differently than you are. Hmm. Um a concern is it is something that can be mitigated um such as dehydration or sunburn. You want to respond to things is a pre- preventative type concern. Right. A complaint is something that's happening now that um you know such as weather, you know the, the storm comes up or mm-hmm. saddle sore pops up. 
Mm. That's a serious complaint that can turn into an obstacle. So when defining the issue, defining the concern, it's Mm. a a progress. You have concerns that can, if they're not dealt with, they can turn into a complaint. And then those complaints can turn into bigger obstacles. And that's when we have real issues because now it's an obstacle instead of just a complaint or concern. Yeah. So with that, we we measure that concern, complaint or obstacle obstacle against what we know. And so historically, what do we know about the rider? Um, Is this the first time they've ever had saddle sores? Um, What do we know about their nutrition? Then we start looking at a food sheet. We start measuring out their calories. How much does the rider weigh? Have they lost weight? Have they gained weight? and so when we start comparing what we believe is happening to what, you know, what's historical, then we can make better, uh, we have a better understanding of how to deal with the issue. Is this a one-off or how did we deal with it in the past that worked, mm. you know? Mm. Um, so we analyze why, why okay. is this happening? And then mm. you ask yourself that again, well, why is that happening? And why mm. is this important? And why is it reoccurring? Hmm. And then when you have those answers, then you have something really to work with. It's not until that point do you have something really to work with. Um, Then you start looking for improvements. Um, What actions can we take? Now that we understand the problem, we understand whether it's historical or if it's a new issue, we understand why it's occurring. We understand why it's reoccurring. Hmm. Okay because somebody didn't do their job or because we didn't have a full understanding of hydration and nutrition. Um, we didn't have, a, we didn't understand the mechanics. We didn't know how to change, to, you know, to, to, to take off a chain. All right. Uh, we didn't know how to uh, adjust the saddle for the rider. Um, and then you start looking at what areas can we do to make improvements now and for tomorrow? Like, cause you want your actions today to be to you know to not only do trauma but to also provide a, a level of preventative um, maintenance for the rider, and then you're getting down into the very last part, and that is the control. Hmm. What are we going to put in place to make sure that these things happen and make sure that the complaints, the concerns, and the obstacles hmm. don't reoccur? You know, um, is there an individual that can we put on task? Is this going to be policy? Is this going to be an un, is this going to be an absolute rule, or is it going to be something that it's a procedure that can be a little bit we can that can be a little bit more flexible with, you know? Right. Right. Um, and then when you have that in place, you're ready to move forward because when you you know you you you've assessed the issue, you've put in place, you understand why it's occurring, that allows you to make good decisions on how to problem solve. You know, what are we going to, what are the tools and what are the tools and resources required to really fix the issue? And then what are you going to do about it? And I like to say, you know, a lot of times we'll open up the toolbox and we like to throw everything at the problem. Mm-hmm. What is the smallest thing that you can do to correct the issue? What is the smallest action that you can take to ensure the success of the rider or the crew and to make sure that these problems don't occur again. Okay. Right. Um, and you know, so I'll, I will work with the crew to understand this process. We have other worksheets that we, that I like the crew to, you know, um, use to understand 
and you know, kind of look back at their past events, right, right. You know, reflect back on their past events to say, okay, what are we going to bring to the table today? How can we move this mm. forward to the next event? Right. So Tracy, let's just take a use case over here and uh, create a hypothetical situation on how can the rider and the crew work towards uh, the pointers that you have shared. Um, there is India's most popular ultra cycling race called Deccan Cliffhanger, which is 643 kilometers, which takes place every year in the first week of November. It's around 643. So that is the beginning of RQ, I guess. What are some of the things that can be done uh, keeping the pointers that you mentioned so far? So how can the rider and the crew pair well? Uh, what are some of the simulations that can be done to enhance their synchronicity? Oh, I, well, I think you've, you've just said it. They need to simulate. They need yeah. to practice what they plan to experience as mm. best that they can. You know, and mm -hmm. sometimes you're, you're, you know, sometimes you're pulling the crew in from different play areas and they can't travel to yeah. participate in the simulation. So right. you do the best you can and you work with who you have uh, and you, you do exactly what you said. And that is you try to simulate um, okay. what you expect to. Hmm. So how yeah. much uh, to begin with a hundred or 200 kilometer ride? 100 would be too short, 200, 200, 250, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it, when we're talking about simulating, um, you need to have enough time. You know, I, I really like the riders. I like to have my rider create an event for themselves that is important hmm. so they can practice with the crew. Right. And if, there is, if there's not a pre-existing event already happening, then hmm. I want them to go ahead and try to set a record. Try to right. go to city to city. Okay. You need to participate and create a simulation that is as exact as possible in terms of the terrain. Or you, know, you can even simulate in your simulation, you know, a tire change, right? So today we're going to take this, you get a 100 kilometer ride. And at a mile, it's at mile 30, we're going to simulate a tire change or a, um, a puncture. And we're going to practice with our food sheets. At the end of this simulation, we're going to evaluate, did you um, use the food sheets? Were you taking notes on how much I'm, I'm, water I'm taking in, how many calories I took in? Um, how much time did it take for us to um, do the wheel change or the rider exchange? Um, how can we make it better? How can we be more efficient in that process? Because ultimately, and this leads us to a sort of a part two, um, is how do we decrease the downtime of what we're doing? If our right. job is to produce mileage, how are we right. doing it? And how can we do it more efficiently? Right. Is that helpful? Absolutely. So okay. folks, talking with Tracy is always, uh, you know, there's always something new to learn from. And uh, I hope this part of the conversation was helpful. There's a lot more that we are going to talk about it. We just, I feel we are just scratching the surface and we are just starting to pick the brains of Tracy. Stay tuned for part two because there's a lot more that we are going to come up with. Uh, lot more on how can we reduce the uh, downtime how can we become more efficient and yes uh, if you're the fan of ultra cycling there 
this part two is for you because these are going to be some actionable episodes that you can uh, take the notes from and you can learn from it so yeah just stay tuned for the second part make sure you subscribe to hit the road if you have not yet done that's how you will get the next episode's notification subscribe to hit the road on epilog media website or wherever you get your podcast from my name is rohan takar i have with me t mac signing off we'll be back very soon with the next part of the episode where we'll be talking more about how can you become the best ultra cycling team in the world